It is the day after April Fool's Day, and you're definitely in the right place because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. It is Wednesday, April 2nd, David. Yesterday was April Fool's? Yesterday was indeed, indeed April Fool's. One of the great things about the WTMIers is that they are so darn sharp. One of the tough things about the WTMIers is that they are so darn sharp. Couldn't fool anybody. No. We, did, we, didn't get, we didn't get any emails, any tweets, but we pre- appreciate the support everybody picked up on the fact that yesterday's show, which I will say was, may have been the show that I had the most fun with since we started this show. Uh, yesterday's show was completely and entirely an April Fool's Day show. Yes. Nothing on there was real. From Nothing my, we ever say is really real. From my so. thug life. Uh, oh, that was Motley a joke, too. Fool. You got me on that one. I thought you were really going to do that. My Thug Life Motley Fool tattoo, all the way to your stock pitch for Psych. Uh, but what we're going to do today, we're going we're gonna to go back through. We're going to do a little re- rewind here, mm-hmm. go back through yesterday's show, and talk about the reality of what we talked about, because it was, it was fun, it was silly, but uh, there are some financial realities, some investing realities behind what we uh, were joking about yesterday. Before we get to that, Michael Strahan on Good Morning America. Sounds like they're about to sign a contract. This is not an April Fool's joke, what? which is kind of funny. Michael Strahan is close to signing on as a co-host of Good Morning America. I thought he America. already had a morning thing. This is, this, is, I, I, this is a better one, right? Isn't Good Morning America like the flagship, like the star? I guess so. The morning shows? That guy gets around. He does everything. So much for retirement. Is there, is there a football player that you can think of that has had a better post-retirement career? Post-retirement. Terry Bradshaw, maybe? He's been around. He's still relevant. I would like to see Chad Johnson, Chad Ochocinco, get on Good Morning America. That's what I want to see. Really? Yeah, it would be entertaining. All right. Uh, Getting on to it. Uh, Full coin. Starting off with full coin, we spent the the headline section of yesterday's show talking about the Motley Fool's big announcement of full coin, which was supposedly a competitor to Bitcoin. One of the things that I said yesterday was that full coin really put the currency in digital currency that, that this made me really believe in the idea that we could have a digital currency and that this could be something that we could use for everyday transactions. I'm still skeptical on that. I'm still skeptical on, obviously, full coin isn't real. Mm-hmm. Obviously, full coin isn't real. Um, but I'm skeptical in general of the digital currency thing. And a and, and big part of the reason for that is that currency is a, it's a government thing around the world. And it's going to be very difficult for a true digital currency to, to gain traction in any meaningful way mm-hmm. outside of the, the legitimate currency of different regions. Um, as far as investing, one of the other things we talked about, one of the things that was up on Fool.com was how much the price of yes. Fullcoin was going up, 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 up. Um, the idea of, I'm still skeptical of the idea of investing in a digital currency as a way to make money as a, as a long-term investment. We've gone a little bit back and forth on this, I think, over time on this show in terms of when you think about Bitcoin, if it could gain traction on the digital commerce, in, in, the, in the global digital commerce world, um, that given the cap on the number of Bitcoins that can be issued, you can kind of back into it could be worth a lot right. more than... But at the same time... I, I'm a big proponent of circle of competence and trying to evaluate that, trying to figure out what that's worth outside of my circle of competence. 
I'm more about looking at businesses, yeah. and and Bitcoin is not a business; it's a it's a thing; it's a vapor. I mean, yeah. I, any different thought on that? It's tempting. It's tempting to look at the what Bitcoin has done and look at it when it was ten dollars a Bitcoin, and then almost a thousand dollars a Bitcoin, and you're mm-hmm. like. I can make a lot of money off this. It's very Bitcoin it's billionaire. Very tempting to do this, and the comparison everyone always makes is gold. And that's not a good comparison, but it's a good comparison in terms of just the psychology around it. Yeah, and what the prevailing price will be. I, I, so it's tempting to look at. I actually at feel a lot similar about both of those. Yes, exactly. I, I would. I would think about those in a very similar fashion. So there's times where you're kind of like, oh, it, this makes sense. This is going to be worth more. People are going to be willing to pay for this at a higher price in the future. So I should buy it today. But when you look at the long period of time, and people always cite gold going back to, what, 1800 and what it's done today, mm-hmm. vastly underperforming stocks. Right. Vastly. So you can have these short periods of time where gold has a nice run, where Bitcoin has a nice run. But when you're looking at a long-term investor, it just, it's very hard to make the case that it's going to be a better investment than stocks over the, over the long run. Now, here's, here's what, what, is, what is real in terms of, of what I see in Bitcoin and, and what I think about, and again, digital currency, kind of, let's put quotes around the, the currency part of that. Uh, a transfer, a way of, for people to securely transfer value um, over the digital sphere. I, I do think that Bitcoin, if, if it isn't the solution, it provides a model for, for a better solution um, and a way of going forward. And when we look at the money that's being spent by venture capitalists, it's not for the most part, on Bitcoin. It's around Bitcoin. It's around the idea of these digital currencies and making them easier to use, making it easier for, uh, for businesses to use them. So, so a big concern here with businesses is that you accept this digital currency and then what happens? What are the, what are the backstage mechanics of accepting the currency and then you have to transfer that back and in, in this real world, in the current iteration of our world, you have to transfer that back to dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part. If you want to pay taxes, probably and have to have it in dollars. I, as far as I know, the IRS isn't taking Bitcoin yet. So, so you, you've got to do that. And then, uh, and, and so how do you make that all work? And, and that's where a lot of the money is going into. And I think that that's going to help the situation. Um, but Bitcoin still has, I mean, we've seen a lot of these hurdles that Bitcoin still has to overcome. We've, we've seen all of these uh, speed bumps, I guess you can call them for lack of a better way to put yeah. it. But, but again, so much money is going into technology around Bitcoin. A lot of the speed bumps, a lot of the problems we've seen has been an impact of bad technology around Bitcoin. So w- when we think about Mt. Gox and that whole situation there, I mean, that's basically an example of they did not have the right uh, processes and technology in place to be able to properly monitor, I guess, what the heck mm-hmm. they were doing. Right. It's, it's going to be, it's a tempting story. It's been a tempting story. It's going to continue to be a tempting story. But I just don't think it makes sense for a traditional stock investor. Uh, unless at some point there's the opportunity to invest in one of these companies that supports digital transactions, supports digital currency, mm-hmm. as opposed to the digital currency itself. Agreed. Going on to your stock pitch. Yes. You pitched a stock yesterday. It was, what was it? It was... Uh, Security International Credit Enterprises, duh. Duh. Security International Credit Enterprises. Of course, credit with a K. Ticker Why symbol, wouldn't it be? Ticker symbol S-I-K-E. Uh, and yes, as a reader pointed out, psych. Mm-hmm. It's classic. Um, some of the things that you pointed out in that pitch 
or most of the things that you point out in that pitch were the exact opposite of what we typically talk about here in, in, in looking for in a stock. Uh, I'll start off with one of them, and that's arbitrary measures of, su- of success. So one of the things that you said about psych is, uh, is that they measure their success based on the number of physical credit cards they put in people's hands, mm-hmm. which is completely ludicrous. Right. It, it doesn't really, that's not a good measure of the success of the company. And we were, we were talking a little bit about uh, little seven-year-old kids getting their hands on a credit card with a $10,000 mm-hmm. uh, credit line. So I think one of the things that investors need to watch out for uh, are companies that are very focused on measures that don't really translate into long-term success for that business. And, and, and I'll share uh, an example of a company that does the opposite. And maybe this is too easy to go with Berkshire Hathaway. But Berkshire Hathaway, really the, the quintessential shareholder material that goes out every year is uh, Buffett's shareholder letter. Right. And right on the front of that shareholder letter, he shows the, ch- the year-over-year change in book value. And that is, that is perhaps the most important metric for Berkshire Hathaway shareholders because over time, this business is valued on a multiple of book value. So to the extent that Buffett and his team can grow that book value, shareholders benefit. And the other thing about that is every year it's the same. It's the same chart, yep. the same growth, the same benchmark of the S&P 500, and when he doesn't beat that when, when that book value growth doesn't beat the S&P 500, they don't change it. They don't leave it off. They don't bury it five pages down. It's right there on the front page, and you see when Berkshire beats it and when it doesn't. Right, and I talked about just getting the cards out into as many hands as possible, and I don't want to poke at the social media stocks too much, but it's something we should be aware of investors. But you do. That's kind of how companies are trying to convince you that, their business is amazing, right? So it's one of those things just to be alert, whether they're saying, look, we have this many unique visitors to our site, we have this many, quote, members. That's kind of the new hot word with all of these upstart companies. A member sounds a lot better than just a visitor to the website there. Mm-hmm. So just something to be aware of. How concrete are those examples and how are they tying them to actual business? Well, businesses? I'm going to go ahead and put you on the spot right, right, right now because I, I hear you say that and I know a favorite of yours is Zillow. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Zillow talks a lot about the, the, the visits to the page, um, the, the number of members they have. So how is it that they're able, either is that more meaningful to them, or how are they able, how do they tie that back into to the more meaningful metrics in the business? Right, because I think it's different for them, because the members actually pay for the service. And without, I mean, looking at the acquisition of, of WhatsApp, and I'm not an expert on that, you can say, look, we have all these Facebook, users. you're talking about Facebook. Yeah, user, uh, Facebook's acquisition of that. We have all these users, all these members. A lot of them don't pay for the service. And you look at Zillow, the subscriber numbers, those are people that very, are very, paying. Very, very few of those Facebook members pay, right. for any, pay for any service. Exactly. So looking at Zillow, that's actually members that are writing a check, so to speak, to Zillow for the service. That's a lot different than just saying, well, we've got these members that use our service but don't actually pay for it. So that's the difference. You want to see if they're going to use those numbers, is there actually some money coming in is behind it, those numbers. Meaningful. That's what's the important part of it. Uh, another thing you pointed out was the, was the fancy headquarters that Psych has. And, and the way that you put it was that uh, they want people to use their credit cards, so have this big fancy headquarters, and, and that'll convince them that this is a great company. Uh, actually, a lot of times the, the opposite is true in, in terms of how, uh, how well-managed a company is. And 
I'm going to use Berkshire Hathaway as an example again, but the, the Berkshire Hathaway office is a very simple, small office in Omaha, nothing fancy about it. It's Buffett and just a handful of headquarters employees there. Um, but for those who are fans of um, Thorndike, what's his first name? William. William Thorndike's book, The Outsiders, one of the things he talks about it is that a lot of the, the office spaces of these outsider managers, these guys who do it, ha- have done it in the past differently than everybody else and achieved much better results, uh, their office spaces a lot of times are very unremarkable. That's true, but I don't want to get into a scenario where you can only invest in a company that has a crappy office, right? <laughs> so to speak. Uh, you, you look at a company like Goldman Sachs, a company that I'm bullish on for the, for the mm-hmm. future, and I think they can give good shareholder returns going forward. They're not slumming it up right. in New York. I mean, it's not an absolute, they have a nice office, this, this is a bad company. So I don't want to get into that territory. No, no, no. And, and, and I think that's a good point. But at the same time, Goldman Sachs, of the, of the companies that I own and of the companies that I'm positive on, that is one that I would put in the category of I'm skeptical of the way that they think about their shareholders. Okay. I, I think that Goldman Sachs doesn't always put their shareholders first. First is maybe not the, the right way to think about it because there are, every business has to serve multiple constituencies and maybe you want to see them on an equal playing field. But, I, but I'm skeptical of where shareholders fall in, in importance for Goldman Sachs. So that would be an example of having really nice posh offices. Eh. Well, I, think the, I think the balance there is if you don't think you're number one on there menu. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have to get compensated that much more for what you're paying for the stock there. Sure. So there's a balance here. But but I think in terms of in terms of the the way the company spends its money and the image that it, that it puts forth, is this a company that's more focused on self-aggrandizement? Is the CEO uh, focused on self-aggrandizement, uh, or is this a company that's really about building a, a high-quality business? Okay. Um, Let's see. One other, one other that I'll point out here is being cagey. This kind of uh, goes back to the, the first one I talked about, but being cagey about uh, important financial metrics. You, you had mentioned that, they, that Psych doesn't actually even disclose non-performing loans, mm-hmm. which is a critical, uh, a critical measure for a lender. Doesn't, doesn't disclose non-performing loans, but in the conference calls it would say, hey, we feel pretty good about it. Right. So that's, that's what investors had to go on. Businesses that are not upfront about, so, so again, this is, A, you want to have a business that is focused on the right metrics and not just putting forward arbitrary metrics, but that is, that is clear in the way that they, that they um, show these important metrics and doesn't try to hide from them. And consistency, like you mentioned earlier, it's nice to see if they're going to consistently have that metric on there right. and not just say, well, this was good this year, let's put that in there. If they didn't have it last year, then that's a little... All right. So a good stock pitch from you yesterday, and, and listeners can, can probably go back and reverse engineer almost every point that you, that you went through and, and figure out, here's how we find a good business by doing the opposite of what exactly. David was talking about yesterday. All right, moving on. We have an email address. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. We got some great emails in reaction to the show yesterday. This one comes from Scott Gomes. Uh, Scott writes... Uh, just watched your show today, and it took me a while to catch on to the theme of the show. I couldn't understand why I couldn't find any information on Psych 
Clever, by the way. I'm no pro, but consider myself a pretty fairly, fairly investment competent, and I was even fooled for a while. I really enjoyed what you guys did today, and I think it speaks volumes for the state of financial literacy in the U.S. and Canada. I'm your neighbor in the North. Uh, it's amazing that the effect of the market jibber-jabber can have on people. I'm talking about your Tech Traders Corner segment right now. There's so much flash and noise made about support and resistance levels, insert funny name, reflex curve, and this and that and all of the above. And to be frank, it drives me bananas. Also, with all the craziness going on with high-frequency trading this day, it, these days, it saddens me to think of all the small investors getting hosed taken, and taken for a ride. I don't really have much of a point of writing you guys other than to let you know how much I enjoy your segment and how much I appreciate both your insights and input. Thank you. Uh, One thing I do want to ask is what would you recommend for someone who wants to learn more about valuing companies and gaining a better understanding regarding financial statements and balance sheets? First of all, first of all, I get annoyed too by the market jibber-jabber. It's very frustrating. Do you? And not, not, he talks about the high-frequency trading and people getting hosed on that. Side, I, I'm more annoyed by the fact that people think it's too complex for them to do. And one of the things that we talk about here, finding good companies, identifying the right time, the right value to buy them. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing that an investor can do is invest for a longer period of time. And every year that someone's waiting on the sidelines, that can have huge damage on what their financial picture looks like in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So for the people sitting there like, ah, it's too scary, I can't do it, I don't understand the samurai Try stutter. I can't do it. That's what gets me more annoyed than people getting hosed by high frequency trading. If if that's a thing, so just wanted to say that. All right. Well, thank you. As far as as far as learning, I think one of the most important things. So so Scott was asking about specifically about valuing companies and better understanding financial statements. As far as all of that goes, I think maybe stepping back, the most important thing is really understanding business. Uh, and and David, David Gardner has talked about this in terms of uh, the kind of reading material that he favors. He's, he's uh, said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, so this, this may, be, may be a little, go a little further than, than what he's actually said, but he said he's not a big fan of investing books per se, but he's a big fan of business books. And for a long time, I was a big fan of investing books, and I still do like to read an investing mm-hmm. book from time to time. The Outsiders, for example, invest... Well, it's kind of a business book. Yeah, I guess it sort of straddles, doesn't it? I guess we define an investment book as saying, like, well, you want to look at the capital yeah, asset I, pricing model. And yeah, I guess, that, in, I, so I, like, I guess Outsiders really is more of a business book. But anyway, there are a few bi- uh, investing books that I've really liked over the years. Uh, Peter, Peter Lynch's books, really solid. Uh, ben Graham's books, I really enjoyed. They're a little bit more technical. But in general... Long-term, you're talking about long-term investing. I think that's really important. And, and long-term, the most important thing is finding really good businesses that are worth holding over 10 years or 20 years' time. Um, those are the businesses. Because when, when you look at it, I don't want to strike the importance of valuation and, and understanding that. But when you look at a 10-year time span, the difference in, say, a valuation multiple. So if you buy an undervalued stock and what happens is the valuation multiple goes up. So let's say you buy a bank at one times book value and the book value goes up to two. That's, that's good. That'll help mm-hmm. your return. But the big returns, the really big scores for investors come from the businesses that are growing, from the businesses that really expand what that valuation multiple is multiplying. So whether you're talking about bottom line profits or whether you're talking about book value, the businesses that can grow that metric 
over a long period of time. That's the most important thing. And so understanding what makes a really good business, I think, is number one. Right. Um, to actually answer the question, though, <laughs> value in companies, um, there's some great res- resources out there. Um, Professor DeMordian at, uh, did I say that right? Do you know how I say that? I don't know how to pronounce it. Professor DeMordian at uh, NYU, he's uh, one of the great valuation experts of our day. You could read some of his stuff. I I think that's really good. It it gets wonky, but if you want to understand valuation, that's a good way to go. Uh, Financial statements, you, you can start with some accounting books, but then I think just going through actual 10Ks, actually actual quarterly reports, and stumbling around, uh, trying to get to points where you're like, I don't really know what this means, and then figuring out what it means, I think that's probably more helpful than just going from front to back through an accounting book and trying to go through it that way because you'll be learning um, from the real world. Yeah, and just to piggyback on the first kind of segment you had there, um, when you find a good business, you can it gives you more leeway to be wrong on your valuation. That's another way to put it. It's very hard to be dead right on your valuation and how that fits into today. But if you have a business that's growing with it, it gives you some leeway there. You could be off 50% on your valuation, but if you have a really good business, then you can still be successful. Whereas if you're kind of if you're shorting a stock mm-hmm. and you think that thing's going down, you better be dead on with your valuation. You better know exactly what that company's worth because you're banking on you being right. And your downside is unlimited. Yes. All right, Tech Traders Corner. Let's revisit the Tech Traders Corner. Let's do this quickly. Um, <laughs> You're an idiot. That's what we can basically say. <laughs> that explains it. Obviously, every every one of the technical indicators that I pointed out yesterday were completely made up. Had a lot of fun doing that. I think the Takahashi Samurai breakout was probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, technical trading, this idea that there are repeatable patterns in stock charts... I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm, I'm at the point where... There are people that so strongly believe in this that I'm not going to try to convince them otherwise. I personally have not seen anything that convinces me that drawing patterns on charts is a good way to invest my money. And typically, when you're doing that, you're investing for these very short periods of time. And when you think about the investors that have been most successful over time, um, whether that be a Tom Gainer, whether that be a Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. whoever. They've done that by investing in businesses, again, just like we were talking about, over long periods of time, not following these, these chart patterns. And I, I think you hit it there. It's not, you're not investing. That's not the word. And I, I think I had one of our writers point out to me on the SEC website when they have their section about day trading. Mm-hmm. It says, day traders do not invest. It says that on the website. There you go. They're not investing. You're doing something completely different. So if you're looking at technical analysis, that's not part of investing. It's part of day trading. So maybe you can... Uh, I'm not going to completely discount it because there, there are people that... I think it's voodoo. Uh, there are a very, very... I think it's voodoo. Let me put it that way. I but think there, there are a very, 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 very small percentage of people who are successful over time at day trading. Very, very small. It's very similar to... Is it a coin flip? I mean, is that a coin flipping contest winner? It may be. Or are they actually... I mean, there, there are very successful people who gamble for professionally here. So it's not to say that it's impossible to be successful, but it's such a small percentage. But is it, is it roulette gambling or is it poker gambling? Uh, probably. <laughs> it's probably a little bit of a blend of both. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I'm just saying, I'm not, I, there are people who have done it, so I'm not going to say you can't do it, but you're probably not one of them. 
the people out there listening. It, here, here's how I'll put it. If my, if my grandmother came to me and said, should I do this? I would say, not a chance. Yes, I agree. Not a chance. If my friend came to me and said, should I do this? And, and I have had friends come to me and say, not a chance. Don't bother. But if someone came to you with 20 years of doing it and they said, look, I've made good money on it, do you believe me now? I've said, I, I'd say, where do you hide that rabbit's foot? Okay. Let's finish off today. Uh, in the Twitter sphere, we do not have our typical Twitter pictures because I was bad about getting those to you. Um, but I have a couple tweets that I wanted to share, if I can get to them here. Uh, the first tweet, we were talking about the, uh, the debate over high-frequency trading. Mm-hmm. Sorry, where the heck did I put these? We don't have the tweets. We don't. We did, these tweets disappeared on me. Um, but let me put it this way. The first tweet was about the, the Michael Lewis uh, and the high-frequency trading. Here it is. It's from Steve Russellillo. Uh, tweeted, no, the stock market isn't rigged. If anything, Main Street might have rigged it against Wall Street. That's from AQR Capital uh, on the Wall Street Journal. Uh, AQR Capital, very smart firm, hedge fund, um, makes a very compelling case in the Wall Street Journal against this idea that the market is rigged. And, and, and I think one of, the, one of the signs of that is the extent to which costs have come down. And, and when we think about the costs of trading on the stock market, it's obviously the fees. So we pay a fee, you and I, because mm-hmm. what, what Michael Lewis is talking about is, is tr- you know, investors like you and I, the everyday investor. So th- what we pay is the fee that we pay plus the spread on the stock. And one of the things that high-frequency trading may, a lot of people think that, that it's helped with this, may have helped do, is tighten those spreads. Yeah. And so that reduces our costs for trading. And then this, this penny here and penny there that people say high-frequency trading is stealing, we could maybe think about that as the yeah. fee not that they take for, the, for providing that. Right. You're not accounting for what it used to be or what it would be otherwise. So I'm, I'm very skeptical on I, 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 I'm sure that, that Lewis's book is going to be fantastic, probably a great read. He's a great writer. He's a very smart guy. But I'm very skeptical on the claims about the, the market being rigged. <clears throat> and this is, this is small anecdotal evidence. But I put in two trades yesterday. So I'm, a, I'm a, an everyday investor. I put in two trades yesterday. I put them both. Uh, they were both limit trades. One of them got filled at the limit. The other one got filled for $0.05 cents per share below the limit that I set. So when you're talking about, oh, the market is rigged and we're getting robbed for a penny on every one of our trades, you look, at, you look at that, you look at what's actually happening when you put in a trade, and it's like, well, where is this? It goes, along, it goes along with what I just said about people being scared that they don't understand the technical. To me, this is just going to scare more people into not investing. And like you said, Michael Lewis has done a lot of things to kind of expose some bad practices. Mm-hmm and highlights and things that Wall Street does poorly. To me, I, don't, I think this may hurt the individual investor kind of scaring them about this rather than exposing anything that's really, really bad for the system. Finishing off, uh, a tweet from Barry Ritholtz, uh, a favorite of ours on the show here. Uh, he says in a tweet, at Reformed Broker coined this headline, irrational non-exuberance for stocks. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a Bloomberg View uh, article from uh, Ritholtz. It's, it's basically about, there, there's an article from the New York Times over the weekend, again talking about this idea that stocks are in a bubble, uh, looking at the, the king, I still can't, king, 
what is it, King Media or something, the Candy Crush yeah, yeah. maker. That IPO, the valuation of some of the internet companies, and, and then the, the valuations of, of stocks as a whole, talking about stocks are in a bubble and that investors are, are overexcited. But Ritholtz points out in a very sober column, when you start to look at the numbers, when you start to look at the, the, the polls that, that are being done today that show that 50% of investors are still saying, yeah, we think it's a bad idea to invest in the stock market. 50%. It's, it's hard to say that we're looking at anything – well, I, I, I'm not going far enough. It's impossible to say that we're looking at anything similar to what we saw in 1999 or 2000. Yeah. I think there's – and I've said this before. It's either stocks are overvalued, they're going to crash, or the stocks are going to soar higher. There's no, everyone seems to ignore the middle ground, which is, hey, we might have annualized returns of 3% over the next five years. Now, that's going to disappoint a lot of people. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we're kind of doesn't make good news. Terrified. It, it doesn't make good news. Yeah. So there's a middle. Who's going to read the headline? There's a huge range where stocks could be over the next five to ten years, and it doesn't mean that they're going to be horrible or amazing. We've got to recognize the middle. You think they're going to be amazing, though, right? I don't know. <laughs> I'm definitely not like terrified not. of it, though. I mean, yeah. Give, every, give us the good. Everyone, headline. everyone give us wants the good to headline be, to finish off on. Stay invested, and you'll be okay. <laughs> is the worst headline I've ever heard. That's, yeah, that's what the truth is. No one wants the truth. They can't handle the truth. Well, that, there you have it. You can't handle the truth. Uh, well, that's the show for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David A Few Good Men Hansen. Uh, you can find us on, on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services. You can also find us on Twitter, at TMF Financials. That's all for today. We will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.